Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. And I want to get right into the message today. We're going to cover a lot of ground. It seems like as we've come to the close of this book, we've sort of hit the warp speed button. I've been watching uh, Star Trek, so we've been hitting the warp speed button a little bit and just sort of uh, moving on and, and really quickly moving through these last few chapters because it's interesting to me uh, that it's, it's a bit of a historical narrative. I think you guys have realized that. It's a lot of just telling us what's been going on with the Apostle Paul. In fact, the last several chapters, we haven't even seen anybody saved. Now think about that. If you, if you look back at the book of Acts and how many times we see people saved and, and, and groups transformed, and yet uh, what we see in these last few chapters is that there doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on. Just the Apostle Paul going from trial to trial to trial. If you remember when he got to Jerusalem, he was hoping that would be a pretty great reunion, right? He had an offering for the church there, and he was excited about sharing with them uh, what God had been doing. But then they falsely accused him, you remember? The Jews said, you have, you've uh, moved away from the past. You've moved away from your Jewish heritage. All you care about is the Gentiles. And in fact, you're telling the Gentiles, they don't have to do anything with the Jew, have anything to do with the Jews. And Paul had to defend himself. Remember he, he did that, um, uh, that vow. Remember he shaved his head and he went and took that vow at the temple with those guys and paid for them and uh, to prove who he was and prove that he was faithful in that way. Uh, but then the crowd started to riot. Remember those Jews from Asia pointed at him and said, he defiled the temple. So a riot ensued. The Romans had to rescue him. They were going to beat him. And then he said, I'm a Roman. So they stopped him. And so then he had his, his time before for uh, Claudius Lysias, you remember that there in Jerusalem, and then he brought the Sanhedrin, and they accused him, and then they had to protect him again as they tried to rip him apart. Uh, then there was a conspiracy to kill him, and then they took him all the way down to Caesarea. Do you remember that? He says, "You're going to Caesarea now, where Felix is," and then he stands before Felix, and Felix was a total nut job. Uh, but the Sanhedrin came down there, and they accused him, and 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 what has just been so crazy to see is all of these things happening. It doesn't seem like the gospel is really going forward, but what is taking place? And what we talked about last week is that God's will is being done in the life of the Apostle Paul. God is accomplishing something with him. God has a purpose. And what is so amazing as well that we've noticed is that through those trials, Paul's faith has been proven and showed to us time and time and time again through this as he has remained faithful. But here's the thing. We know Paul is trusting, right? We know God is in control. We know that. But at the same time, the Apostle is still in trouble, isn't he? At the end of it, if you remember last week where we ended off, he was in Felix's uh, care or he was being, not controlled, but he was basically under arrest still by Felix. And Felix in that moment uh, was not a very good governor. And so he had been recalled. But during that whole process, he essentially just kept Paul in prison for two years. For two years, we know that Paul uh, was in prison. He was in captivity under Felix. We don't know what was happening during those two years, except that Paul wrote a little bit. And we also know that Felix would call him often. Remember, he said often he would come and he would spend time with Felix and he would share the gospel. But Felix said, come back when it's a convenient time. Remember that he never truly accepted and never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as his savior. Well, the last we know about Felix as we get into today's message is that Felix was recalled to Rome and then eventually he was exiled to die alone in the mountains. That kind of tells you what kind of guy he was. <laughs> Rome exiled him away to die on his own. But this is where we pick up the story where Paul is in Caesarea Felix has been recalled over there, and now a new governor has been assigned by the Roman government. A new governor has been assigned to this Judean province, a man named Festus. And so today, point number one, as we get into our notes, we're going to see Paul before Festus. Point number one today, Paul before Festus. We're going to give, us, uh, give a lot of background here as we walk through this passage. Look at verse number one. It says, now when Festus was come into the province, after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. 
And then the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him, that means they begged him, and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. What a familiar story here, right? Uh, we're introduced to Festus, a new governor. And Festus, by all accounts, was a good guy. We, we understand from history, he was a much better person than Felix. And what we notice about him is that as soon as he gets there, what does he do? He does the responsible thing. He goes up to Jerusalem and he begins to get to know the leadership and those that are now under his responsibility. Yet when he gets to Jerusalem and he meets with the high priest and he meets with the Sanhedrin, the first thing they talk about is we want you to send Paul from Caesarea and would you send him back up here to Jerusalem because we want to deal with this guy. He's our prisoner. Or he's, we have a problem with him. But then the scripture tells us that they were laying a weight uh, in the way to kill him. Now they had already had this all set up. They're like, all right, here's our chance. It's been two years. There's a new governor now and we're going to ask him to send Paul and we're going to do the same thing. Maybe those 40 same men came forward. Remember that vow? You know, well, it's been two years. So obviously they're still around probably. Uh, they didn't, we didn't hear about them dying from the, not, not achieving their goal. Uh, but they said, we're going to kill him and we're going to get him. And so they're, that's their, uh, that's their uh, desire there. But then in verse number four, but Festus answered. Now he, here's the thing. He's not a pushover. This is what I want you to notice. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept in Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them therefore, said he, which is among you that are able, come down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. Well, I am sure that Festus had heard from Felix about the manipulating ways of the Jewish leaders. And so he says to them, uh, listen, if this is something you want to deal with, you come down to me. You, those of you that want to accuse Paul, come to Caesarea and we'll have another trial and we'll see if your accusations are true. Man, these Jews knew how to hold a grudge. I just find it so interesting. I mean, the first guy they get, the first time there's a new leader, it's been two years. The first thing they say is we want Paul. <laughs> we want to kill Paul. Maybe you've had somebody hold a grudge against you for two years before. Hopefully none of you are holding a grudge against somebody else for any longer than it takes you to get right with God, right? But man, you know what it's like? I, I remember um, one time I met some people from high school and I hadn't seen them in like, you know, 10 years or so. And uh, guess what came up? Man, this girl does not like you. And I was like, what? <laughs> I had no idea why she didn't like me. Turned out she did like me, apparently. I didn't know it. And so I acted like I didn't know it. And so I guess I'd been mean to her in high school. But anyway, here we are. Now I'm 25 and it's a real problem. So anyway, I think we worked it out. But you know what it's like to have somebody hold a grudge against you. Look at verse number six. And when he had tarried among them, that's an interesting word. I'll explain it in a minute. When he had tarried among, uh, among them more than 10 days, he went down unto Caesarea. This is Festus. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews came down from Jerusalem. They stood round about and laid many grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. Did you see that there? They laid a bunch of complaints that they could not prove. It says that he tarried. So Festus tarried. That means he stayed in Jerusalem. Now that word tarried is kind of interesting. It means to, uh, it, it, it's the idea of, um, in its literal, it, it means rub away or to smooth away. It's kind of the idea of smoothing ruffled feathers is what it was. So he stayed there for 10 days. He tried to kind of smooth things out with the Jewish leaders. I want to make everything right. And they said, all right, fine. And so they came down to Caesarea and they began to open up a can of false complaints against Paul. Notice how it says that they stood around him. They physically intimidated him and they tried to bring it up, but they could not prove anything. It was total fake news, right? We see this total fake news. They couldn't prove a thing. While he answered for himself in verse number eight, 
Neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. So he finally gets a chance to defend himself. And he says, I haven't offended uh, the temple. I haven't offended Caesar, nothing at all. But then it says in verse nine, but Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? Now, we have to understand Festus here. He's trying to find some middle ground, right? He's trying to find a way as the new uh, governor who comes in. He's trying to find a way. Let's get the Jews. Let's make them happy. I'm new to the area. And so he says to Paul, Paul, wouldn't you just go up to Jerusalem? Please go to Jerusalem and and let's deal with it uh, up there. Of course, Paul is not going to return. (laughs) Paul is not going to return because for Paul to go back to Jerusalem is like a step backwards for him. Besides the fact that he knew they're going to try to kill him, right? He had, he, he fully understood that. If I go to Jerusalem, that's the end of my life. And so we see him respond here in verse number 10. Then said, Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. He says to the Jews, have I done no wrong as thou very well knowest. Now that's a very strong statement that he makes there to Festus. He says, you know, I'm innocent. I don't know if Felix had probably told him, and maybe that's the assumption that we see here, is that Felix had told Festus, uh, he's, I, I can't find anything wrong with him. The Jews just want to kill him. And he says to him, you know I am innocent. And then look at verse number 11. He says, for if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. Now that's a very powerful statement there. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. And then he says this, I appeal unto Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. Now don't miss out on this. This is a major turning point right here in the life of Paul. You say, I missed it. Okay, we'll talk about it. I mean, it's a major, major turning point right here. At first, he acknowledges, and I want you to see here, he says about his conscience, remember earlier he said, I have a conscience void of offense before God and men, right? And then to this guy, to Festus, he says, if there was something that was worthy, I would gladly die if I was guilty, is what he said. That's a strong statement. He says, if I'm, if I'm guilty, I would willingly die. But then we see him take things into his own hands here, where he declares, I appeal unto Caesar. This was the, uh, the, the phrase was ad Caesarium provoco. And I'm sure he rolled his R's when he said it. That was the call. And it was a call that only genuine uh, born uh, 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 Roman or purchased Roman citizens could say, is to say that I appeal unto Caesar. Now, this is a big deal for somebody to say that. What he was doing is taking his whole life into his own hands, and he says, I now want to be tried before Caesar. That's what it means. When he says, I appeal to Caesar, it means that I am going to go and I'm going to appeal my case uh, um, to, directly to him. And you know how powerful of a statement it is, because did you notice what Festus said? He stopped arguing with him. He stopped trying to get him to go to Jerusalem. Festus said this. He said, if you've appealed to Caesar, you're going to Caesar. That was the end of it. If a Roman citizen said, I, I want to take my course. Now imagine, that'd be like today, if, uh, if, if any little thing, you got a traffic ticket and you go to traffic court, you know, and I'm not paying that parking ticket. I know that my bumper was within the line and this guy's just trying to bump up his, you know, this isn't a true story, by the way. You know, he's trying to bump up his, uh, his numbers. And so he gave me a ticket and you're standing there in traffic court downtown or whatever. And you're standing there and all of it, you're like, I appeal unto Justin. 
<laughs> you know, I appeal to Justin and they say, okay, to Justin, you will go. <laughs> and then I have to go to fly to Ottawa, you know, and then appeal my case to <laughs> the prime minister for my traffic ticket. Imagine if that happened today, but that was the truth. In, in, in Roman society, you could do that. Anyone could do that. You could appeal unto Caesar. And so Paul takes advantage of that and he appeals uh, to Caesar. To me, it's almost like Paul is just saying enough with this already. <laughs> I'm done with this. He said, the Jews never treat me fairly. Let's get in his head a little bit. You know, the Jews never treat me fairly. Festus, I can tell already they're already working you. They're trying to get me back to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. Enough is enough. I've got one card left to play, and I'm going to play it right now. I appeal to Caesar, and I'm, and I'm all in, <laughs> and I'm going to appeal to Caesar. Now, Scripture doesn't record for us the reaction of the room when Paul says that, but I think you can imagine there would have been some emotion in that room. Think about those Jews that were there trying to, uh, trying to intimidate him. They're trying to get Festus to send him back to Jerusalem, and Paul goes, I, I appeal to Caesar. Oh, man, do you think those Jews would have been happy? Oh, they would have been ticked. They would have been ticked. They would have been angry. They would have been frustrated. So I'm sure there was a great outcry. I'm sure they said to Festus, you've only been here two weeks, man. What are you doing? You're, you're making a big enemy out of me, you know? And, and, and the high priest yelling at him, and it would have been this whole issue. And uh, there would have been anger there for Paul. I think the emotion would have been excitement. He's like, finally, I put it off for this long. I'm going to Rome now. I'm going to Rome. And I'm going on, the, on Caesar's uh, dime, by the way, which interestingly enough, who was the Caesar at this time? It was Nero. So if you know anything about history, Nero was absolutely bonkers. This, though, was within the first five years of his reign where he wasn't as bonkers. <laughs> it wasn't until they instituted Caesar worship where every citizen at one time a year had to proclaim that they worship Caesar as a god. It wasn't until that happened. Nero was relatively balanced as, as Caesars go. But then as soon as they in, in, instituted worshiping the emperor, he just went off the rails. And you know the story from your history classes growing up. Uh, but this was the guy that he was appealing to was to go and to stand in front of Nero uh, himself. Well, for Festus, I wonder what his emotion was. I think it was relief. I think Festus was like, okay, it's not my responsibility anymore. It's out of my hands, Jews. Sorry, guys. Uh, he said, you heard him. I have to do this. He's a Roman. I have to follow what he says. And uh, I, I'm sure he was uh, relieved. It wasn't his responsibility anymore. At the same time, we know, and we'll see in a moment, Festus didn't even think there was anything valid about the accusations. And in fact, he, he thought it was so invalid is that he didn't even know what to accuse Paul of when he sent him to Caesar. I thought that was interesting. He didn't even know, what do I even charge this guy with? He's, he's appealing to Caesar. What is he appealing to Caesar? Well, thankfully, for Festus anyway, he's going to get some advice. So we move on to verse 13. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. And when they'd been there many days, Festus declared Paul's cause unto the king, saying, there's a certain man left in bonds by Felix. So he's talking to Agrippa and Bernice about whom, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. Now here we're introduced to two more characters, King Agrippa II and uh, Bernice, his sister. They were siblings to Drusilla, who had been married to Felix, remember, who Felix was banished. Drusilla was killed at Vesuvius. So we got a little family connection. So they had obviously for the last seven years been going there. Uh, they had family in the area. And now we see them coming to check in on Festus, this new governor. By the way, Festus was like their boss. So Agrippa, now this is an interesting name. You've probably heard it all throughout the New Testament. King Agrippa, there were multiple Agrippas. They're all of the same family. Uh, they were Edomites that were giving ruling, given ruling power over the northern part of Israel. And so that's where their family ruled. There was still a Roman uh, proctoro, which was... Uh, 
which was who Festus is. He was still over the whole region. But then we have the Agrippas who were raised in Judaism, but were connected to the royal family in Rome. And as a result, they had this wide area that they sort of controlled. And so here we see Herod Agrippa II. By the way, he is the last Agrippa to mess with Christ and with Christ's disciples. (laughs) I'll just give you the brief history of him. His great-grandfather was the King Herod who declared that all the baby boys be killed in the vicinity of Bethlehem. That was his great-grandfather. It was Agrippa II's granduncle. He was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. Uh, it was this Agrippa II's father who was the one who had executed James, imprisoned Peter, uh, and he was also the same one that was eaten by worms. Remember, Scripture tells us because he refused uh, or he allowed the people to worship him as a god, which all happened right there in Caesarea. There's a lot of history connected to this family here. So now we have Agrippa II coming here, and it has with him Bernice, his sister, who was younger by just one year to him. Now, this is, this is the, the weirdness of this. Bernice, his sister, had been engaged and then married to his uncle, Herod, who was called the king of Chalcis. But then she left her uncle, who she was married to, and moved in with her brother, Agrippa II, who most people believe were living incestuously as a fam- family uh, there during this time. Their lifestyle was so notorious that later on, Bernice became the mistress to Emperor Titus, and Emperor Titus had to ban her from the country because the Romans said that she was morally outrageous. She was morally too bad to even be in Rome that they had to kick her out. Can you imagine? Okay, these are the kind of people that Paul is dealing with. I mean, the debauchery, the sin, the, I mean, just terrible, terrible, terrible. Well, they arrive in Caesarea and now Festus has somebody to talk to about the apostle Paul and this case. So Agrippa then says to Paul, well, I want to hear from him myself. And so we move into our second point, Paul before Agrippa. I told you we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Are you all with me? We're getting a lot of history today. All right, oh, thank you. All right, well, we will. We will go. We will go fast. Paul before Agrippa. Here we go. Look at verse number 23. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and Bernice with great pomp. <laughs> that tells you a bit about how they, you know, they would have come in, pomp and circumstance and robes. And wow, Agrippa and Bernice are here. Wait a minute, aren't they siblings? Oh, like anyway, okay. <laughs> there was some grossness here. And they entered into the place hearing with the chief of captains and principal men of the city. So all the leaders of the city there. At Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. So they bring Paul forth. Then we come to verse number 24 through 27. I'll give you a quick summary of what happens. Festus then proclaims to them and all the people that are gathered, he says, they have been, or Paul's been accused by the Jews, but we found nothing worthy of death. And he says this in verse 26 and 27. He says, I find it weird. (laughs) He didn't say it. That's not a literal translation. He's saying, I find it weird that we're sending him to Rome, but we have nothing to accuse him about. He says, this guy's innocent. But we're sending him to Rome, and I don't even know what we can accuse him uh, of. Then verse number uh, 1 of chapter 26. So we're moving to 26 now. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, thou art permitted to speak for thyself. And Paul stretched forth his hand. Now that wasn't like, hey, everybody be quiet. That was actually a sign of respect. And so he stretches out his hand in respect, and he begins to speak. And he answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I'm accused of the Jews. He says, I'm going to talk about everything that they're accusing me of. I'm happy to defend myself. 
especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Now, this is just something interesting here. He says, listen, I know that you've been raised in Judaism. I know you understand the culture. You've, he's lived in Israel his whole life. His family's been in Israel all this whole time during the occupation. And he says, I know that you understand the culture. I know you understand the religion. I know you understand the issues that are unique to Israel. So now I'm going to explain to you what's going on. And so Paul gets into his upbringing in verse number four. He says, my manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews. And then he says this, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify. So it says, people who knew me, my buddies from the beginning, if they would testify, testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And he goes right back to proclaiming the fact that he was born and raised as a Pharisee, which is, is evidence of something. Paul, now we're not gonna have the time today, but if you really dissect what Paul is doing here, it is a mastery of, of, uh, of uh, I don't know, defense, I guess you could say. It is, is masterful how he, he weaves this story together. I'm going to give you the brief overview of it. But he begins by saying, I'm a Pharisee, which what he's saying is that I am not some sort of Jewish outsider. Right? One of the accusations is that Paul was an outsider. He's trying to cause problems with our religion. He's trying to make things, you know, uh, trying to ruin things for us. He says, no, no, no. I was a Pharisee. I, have the straight, I mean, I'm the straightest sect. I'm the ones who followed the law. Well, then verse number six through eight, he declares the reason the Jews are persecuting. And he says, well, because I had a hope of a resurrection. That's why they're persecuting me. And we talked about that earlier in one of his defenses. He said the same thing. Then verses nine through number 18, he talks about how his, he tells his own story. He says, they want to kill me and persecute me. But he says, I was also the one doing the persecuting. And he talks about how he went house to house, remember? And how he took people to prison and how he committed them. And he killed people uh, for uh, his own pharisaical causes. But then he talks about Jesus appearing to him on the road to Damascus. And he, in great detail, uh, even more detail, tells that story. There's actually details in that aspect of him talking about his, his uh, salvation story that were not recorded in the other two instances in Acts where it records it. And he gives these details and he shares with him how Jesus came and how then he was given a calling to uh, give, uh, preach Jesus to the Gentiles and turn them from darkness to light. And, and make no mistake here, Paul is not being vague in his message to them at all. He is giving him the gospel, especially in verses 9 through 18. He is preaching to them clearly that him and Bernice and the others that are in the room need uh, Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the answer to what they need. By the way, that's the same thing is true. The same thing's true today. Jesus is the answer. He's the answer for you. He's the answer for our world. He's the answer for our politicians. He's the answer for everything. Jesus is the answer. And he's proclaiming Christ to Festus and Agrippa and to Bernice as well. But then he goes to presenting Christ to now basically putting Christ right in their face. We come to point number three which is Jesus before Agrippa. So there's a change of tone here. Paul is on the defensive. He's sharing uh, his, his, uh, his story and he's telling them what Jesus has done for him. But now he is going to put it right there in front of him. That's why I called it Jesus before Agrippa. It's not Paul any longer. By the way, when you're sharing Christ, you're not, it's not you standing before that person. It's Jesus. You're presenting Christ to them. Verse number 19, he says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. 
but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Verse 21, for these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day. He says, God is the one who's preserved me and protected me to this day. Witnessing both to small and great, saying none other thing, uh, things than those which the prophets and Moses uh, did say should come. Verse 23, that Christ. So he's saying the, the, the Old Testament proves, verse 23, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. To me, I feel like Paul is just sort of getting rolling here a little bit. You know, you kind of, you can hear it in his voice. Uh, you, you guys know what it's like. You can tell like, okay, Pastor Paul's about to get rolling here. You know, you kind of have a little bit of a roll to his speech. And I think he's just starting to go and he's getting warmed up and he's talking about his calling. And that will give you some excitement when you think about to when you were saved, right? And then he's uh, talking about the message of repentance and how it was Christ who suffered and how, oh, by the way, remember the Old Testament, what it said, that proved that Christ is the one who's coming and he is the savior of the world, but yet he was resurrected. He was the first resurrected and he proves to all that, uh, you know, that he is God himself. And then to top it all off, he's talking about how the Jews were killing him, but yet Jesus still protected him and he's still alive. He's preaching the same message, even though he's been trying to kill time and time and time again. And I sit back and I have to read this and just be like, how is this possible? How, where does this guy get the energy from? Where does he get the, I mean, the, 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 at this point, I'd be like, I already appealed to Caesar, man. Leave me alone. Just let me go there and deal with it. But instead, we see him going through this whole process, sharing his faith and preaching. How is that possible? The, the, it's possible because of what he said in verse number 19. Look at verse 19 again. He said, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Now, I want you to, I want you to sit on that for a minute. Paul says, I'm, I'm standing here today. I'm able to do these things. I'm able to preach the gospel to you today because I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. This is after he talked about Jesus coming to him on the road to Damascus. And he says, I did not disobey what God had called him to me. What is this saying? It's telling us, and Paul is saying, his calling was a heavenly calling. It was from the Lord. And so because it was from the Lord, he was not going to turn his back on that calling from Jesus Christ. He was going to obey it and he was going to see it through because he knew it came from God himself. And what a challenge to us today, because I got to be honest with you guys. Listen, there are a lot of Christians today in our world and in our society. And I would say there's some Christians even within our church, possibly, I don't know, but I would say that they have had a calling from God and God has revealed himself to them and God has showed himself to them, but yet they are are not obeying the calling. They are not obeying the heavenly vision, the re revelation of what God has shown to them. Maybe there's some that God has shown them and he said, listen, you need to leave this sin behind. And he's been very clear about it. You need to leave this sin behind, but yet they are still in that sin. Maybe there's someone that God has showed you at a, at a, at a point in some, at some point that you need to forgive somebody who's wronged you. You need to stop holding that grudge. You need to forgive that person. And yet you're still holding on to it, even though God has revealed it to you. What's that called? That's called being disobedient to a heavenly vision. Don't, you know, we like to think, well, Paul, you know, God came to him in the road and he fell to the ground. And he had this light. Listen, Paul would have killed for this, what we have here today. Paul would have loved to be able to meet openly and freely, like well, semi-freely that we do today. Uh, Paul, would have, Paul would have been fine with that. He would have been totally cool with masks. He's like, hey, I can preach Christ, you know? He would have been fine with that. Paul would have been okay with this because, because he, would, he would be like, man, we have so much of the word to expound and to teach and to preach. It wasn't just coming from his own memory or from a few you know, uh, scrolls that, that he had access to or had memorized. And yet 
we still struggle with obedience. Maybe for some it's God has encouraged you or challenged you to give to the work of God in a greater way or to begin giving to God in some way and you're still like, "Eh, I don't know. Uh, Maybe it's about being involved or committed. I definitely know that there's others that God has led and worked in their lives to commit themselves to full-time Christian ministry, but yet they have not been obedient to the calling of Christ. They're still struggling to see it through, still struggling to obey God's direction. And I want to encourage you guys with this. If God has showed you something, if God has revealed something to you in his word, and you're like, this is God, God is showing this to me, please follow the Apostle Paul's uh, um, example to us and just obey Because when you obey God's calling, when you follow uh, whatever it is that he has revealed to you, whether it's confessing sin and getting right with others and uh, are giving or serving or whatever it is that God has revealed to you, if you follow him in that way, he will give you what you need to see it through to the end. That's why Paul could stand there and say, I've been, man, people have been trying to kill me for years. (laughs) They've been trying to uh, ambush me and all of this stuff for years. And guess what? I'm still here today because I was obedient to the heavenly calling that God gave to me. Uh, A.J. Gordon was a pastor, a Baptist pastor in the mid-1800s, and the story is told he was speaking to a bunch of young pastors that were together, and the one phrase that stood out among all else is that he said this to them. He preached a message, never say no to God, is what he said. Never say no to God. Never, ever say no to God. You know, as Christians, we need to hear that. We need to hear that. Never say no to God. When God speaks, say yes to the Lord. Jesus, you remember when he was meeting with his disciples, uh, right near the end, it was after, the, uh, after they had returned to Jerusalem and they were learning the significance of Christ's death. They were learning the significance of what would happen uh, when Christ was resurrected. And Jesus said to them, have faith in God, he said. He said, have faith in God. Don't uh, resist. What he's trying to say is that, listen, if I've called you, I'm leading you to this, guys. I'm going to be gone, but you have faith and I'll walk with you through it. If God has led us, if God has uh, uh, showed us something, we must obey and have the faith that he has called us to do it. Listen, there's a lot of things in life that we should say no to, right? We should say no to temptations. We should say no to that extra piece of cake. <laughs> we should say no, uh, sometimes. We should say no uh, to uh, the devil when he's uh, coming after us. And we should say no to the attractiveness and the philosophy of this world. We should say no to laziness in our homes and laziness uh, w- within our church. But when it comes to the Lord and his word and his direction, it must always be, yes, Lord, I will follow. Yes, I will do that. That's how Paul could stand there and say, I've been obedient to the heavenly calling. And the reason we say yes is because God knows what's best for us. God knows what's best. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. If God leads you and you say yes, it will result in good in your life. You say, well, look at Paul. (laughs) He, He had a rough time. Sure he did, but man, did God do some good with him. Would any of, well, it's easy for us to say this. Would any of us trade Paul's sufferings for the uh, vast amount of the New Testament that he wrote? (laughs) Of course for us, oh, of course not. (laughs) You know, man, I'm willing for Paul to go through that suffering so that I could have this good word. Well, what suffering are you willing to go through? What difficulty are you willing to go through if it's manifested in your children's lives? What good are, what what difficulty are you willing to go through if it means a closer walk with Jesus? (laughs) What trials are you willing to face and to walk through if it means that God uses you to see one other person come to Christ? Think about that. Are you willing? Are you willing to do that? 
Paul gives us such a great example of willful obedience to the calling that God had given to him. And that obedience led to him now sharing Christ with these other men. Look at verse 24. And as he thus spake for himself, self Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. <laughs> but he said, I am not mad, but most noble Festus, but speak his words of truth and soberness. And he says, you're crazy. You're, he says, no, man, I, I'm, I'm down the line. I know what I'm talking about. Verse 26, for the king knoweth of these things. Now, now he turns his attention. So Festus jumps in and tries to distract, which always happens when God's doing something. Festus jumps in, tries to distract him. He says, no, Festus, I'm not crazy. And then he turns back to Agrippa again. We'll just pretend Agrippa's on this side. Festus is over here. He turns back to Agrippa and he says this. He says, for the king knoweth of these things before whom also I speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. (laughs) I love that phrase. He says, he knows that I'm telling the truth. Nothing that happened with Christ was done in a corner or in secret. It's not that far since Christ had been resurrected. I mean, Christians were just, were everywhere. It changed the face of the known world at the time, those that would follow Christ. So he's like, Agrippa, he knows what's going on. But then verse 27, King Agrippa, he asked this question then, believest thou the prophets? And then he says this, I know, I know that thou believest. This is, this, is, this is big right here. He says, don't you believe what the prophets have to say? And then he says, wait, wait, I know. I know you believe. I know you believe in the prophets. Now, this is so interesting here because Paul assumes that Agrippa trusts. We believe he was raised up in Judaism. And so what Paul is saying is that you should, of anyone in this room, Agrippa, you should understand that I am telling you the truth. What is he doing? He's putting the truth of the gospel in his face. <laughs> He's saying you, and then he asks him, don't you believe this? Don't you believe this? He, he, he uh, gives him the evidence. He says, don't you believe the prophets? I know you believe them. And then we come to verse number 28, one of the saddest verses in all of scripture. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now, it's hard to understand the tone, right? We don't really know the tone here. We don't know if he, you know, I've always heard it growing up that he said it in like a sad voice, you know, like, ah, you almost, almost did, right? But to be honest with you, if you have to put put yourself in that situation, put yourself in King Agrippa's situation, to me, I think the questioning or the in-his-face questioning that Paul was doing probably embarrassed him a little bit. I mean, Paul was feeling invincible, right? He'd appeal to Caesar. No one can touch me. <laughs> and he's getting in his face. And I'm sure for Agrippa, it was maybe a little bit embarrassing. You know, he's supposed to be this high ruler. And then over here is Festus, his boss, watching this whole thing. Festus already thinks Paul's mad. He said that. You're crazy. The other leaders are in the room. King Agrippa was not a man uh, known for his humility. He was a very prideful man. And so when he was uh, uh, confronted in that way, maybe it was more of like, okay, ha, Whatever, Paul, you almost persuaded me. You know, it might have been that kind of a that kind of a thing. Or a great, good try, good try this time. You almost did, good try. I, I don't know the tone. Maybe it was in a moment that he that he was confronted with a sin, like Felix, who trembled when he heard the word of God. Maybe he was under great conviction. I think there had to be some conviction there. But he says, I think the main part was that he wanted to avoid answering the question. He wanted to avoid dealing with it. As well, there was political stuff in play. What if he did say, No, I don't believe the prophets. Man, the Jews would be ticked. <laughs> what? We thought you were, you know, part of us. We thought you. And then if he says, I do believe what you're saying, Paul. Well, what, you're a Christ follower? And then Festus would say, you're crazy too, right? I mean, there's all sorts of things at play here into the way that he answers. And so he says this and he sort of pushes it away just like millions and millions and millions of other people following him have done. They have pushed it aside. They've come up with an excuse. They've come up with a reason 
as to why they would not accept. You know, as far as we know, there was never another chance that was given to him. History doesn't record any sort of change that came into his life, any sort of decision later on. But what we see here is that it's a sad commentary of the human heart at this moment. That when the human heart is confronted with the truth, it is amazing how quickly and how easily people who are confronted with that simplistic truth about Jesus Christ so easily can just push it aside and pretend, uh, to, uh, pretend like it doesn't really make a difference or that they don't believe it and they just push it aside and they choose not to believe. They have so many different excuses. As I mentioned earlier, Satan is at work in this world. We know that. But I don't think Satan has to work all that hard to keep people from accepting Christ. Uh, we, man, the, the, the desperateness and the depravity of the human heart is such that we easily find, uh, find reasons not to trust Christ. And that's what Agrippa did here. Then we come to verse number 29. Again, we see the heart of Paul. As Paul says, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. He says, I wish that everybody in this room was just like me. Well, except for these bonds, <laughs> except for these chains. And what is he saying here? I wish that everyone in here had experienced the same life change that I've experienced on the road to Damascus. He had just described it. And it's so, it's so amazing to me because Paul here, as the one in chains, is speaking to those in spiritual bondage. In reality, Paul was the one who was free, wasn't he? In reality, he was the one who was truly free. He had his, his eternity secured. He knew uh, what God wanted him to do. He had a calling and had a purpose. And yet, as he witnessed to them, they resisted and they resisted and they resisted. But he says this. I don't know if you saw that in the verse. He said, I would to God. He says, I wish. <laughs> Saying, my wish is that you guys could be like me. <laughs> be like Mike, right? No, he says, I wish you could be like me. What is he saying? That they would know Jesus Christ. Now think about that for a minute, the power in that statement. The man, Paul, in this room had been beaten. <laughs> he had been persecuted by Jews. He had been ridiculed by the Romans, and yet he still wanted people to know about his Savior. What a model to us today of witnessing to unbelievers, <laughs> not only in words, but in his heart and his passion. You know, sometimes we think like, oh, I better witness to this person because I have to, right? I'm a Christian. I better do it or, you know, <laughs> I have to do this. He shared the truth because he wanted genuinely to see them change like he had experienced change. And that's the heart that we have to have. That's the heart, church. When we share our faith with people, when we even pray for others that need to be saved, we need to have that heart and that desire that I want them to be changed like I've experienced change. Now, for some of you, for some of you, it, it's maybe been too long. You've forgotten what it was like to be changed by Christ. Not only in your daily walk, but maybe your salvation. You're saved like me. I was saved as a kid. Sometimes it's hard to go back and renew in me that passion that I had. Even as a young man, later on in my teen years, when I really got right with God, <laughs> and God began to really do the work in me to think back and remember, and, and to remember the change that took place. So much so that I want others to have that same experience and that same change. Listen, you'll never regret sharing the gospel with another person. You'll never regret it. No matter how odd and awkward the situation, you'll never regret it. Because what we understand is that our job is to share. It's God's job to do the saving. And, and Paul, he had, man, he'd been preaching his heart out for the last couple of years, and yet no one had come to Christ. At least that is recorded for us. I, I believe there are people in Caesarea who came to Christ through his ministry. But these main ones that are highlighted for us, no one, no one came to Christ, which just reminds us is that we're not the ones that does the saving. If Apostle Paul couldn't turn Agrippa's heart, right, it needed to be the Lord. And, uh, and, and he was definitely confronted with it, but yet he chose to resist. He chose to resist the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse number 30, and when he had thus spoken, the king rose up 
and the governor and Bernice, they stood up one by one and they that sat with them. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves saying, this man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, this man might've been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. And that's how chapter six closes up for us. They leave the room, they have a meeting and they said, man, this guy would have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. We can find nothing wrong with him. And you see that and you're like, maybe Paul shouldn't have appealed to Caesar, <laughs> right? You know, and, and you think, man, well, maybe, maybe he shouldn't have. And if he hadn't, then maybe he would have been able to go out and have more missionary trips and all of that. But you know what? We have to remember, as we talked about last week, God is in control and God's will is still being done in the life of the apostle Paul. God had plans for him to testify of Jesus Christ before Caesar and to Caesar he is about to go on the emperor's dime. <laughs> all expenses paid trip uh, to Rome to share the gospel. And that's what we're going to begin next week. We're going to begin that, begin that journey together as Paul makes his way to Rome for his final place of ministry. You say, okay, pastor, what am I supposed to get out of this today? <laughs> that, that's the battle that I've been fighting all week long. Okay, what do we take home? What do we, what do we uh, connect into our hearts today? What do we really lock in? Well, a couple questions and then we'll close today. I think really we have to think about our desire to share Christ, right? We have to think about that. Do you wish, like Paul, that others would know freedom through Jesus that you have experienced? Again, the question is brought up, are you even willing to share the gospel with others? Does your social media feed, does your testimony at work, does it reflect Jesus Christ? The results are left up to God, but we are the ones who must tell. That's why the Great Commission was given to us, to go you know, all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That, that includes everybody, <laughs> everything. We are to preach the gospel that's what we're to do. We're to go, as he told his disciples, to go to uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. That's where the gospel is to go. And then Jesus left. <laughs> well, what was the vehicle for the gospel? Us, the church, Christians. God has called us to share the gospel and to share with them. And so I would encourage you today, if you've maybe been resisting, if you're like, well, I don't know, you know, I, I don't know that God's necessarily revealed anything specifically to me that I'm not being obedient to or I'm resisting. Well, we have this right here. We have the word of God that we can be obedient to. And we have his scripture and his truth. And one of those is sharing the gospel. So I encourage you today to maybe renew in your heart a desire and a passion to share God's truth with those that do not know him. It may just take a moment of you reflecting back on when you were saved yourself and just thinking about the passion and the joy that came as a result and wanting to share that with others. There could be, and I recognize today, that some maybe in this room, maybe those that will be watching later on are maybe like Agrippa in a, in a sense, where you've been resisting God's grace to you. You've been resisting the opportunity to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe some of you have just been resisting God's work in your life. And like, like Fe, uh, Felix who said, come back when it's convenient, <laughs> or like Festus or uh, Agrippa who said, well, uh, you know, almost. Good try, Paul. You got really close. <laughs> Would you stop pushing it off any longer? Would you stop trying to find excuses for God's work in your life? If you're not saved, would you accept him today? Would you stop relying on other things and other people even and just trust in him today? Would you, like Paul, be obedient to the direction of Christ? We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist.
Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.